A very warm welcome to you all, and uh, a warm welcome to those who are listening to us and watching us this morning on live stream, and those who are listening on podcast as well. Welcome back to Mark My Words. Um, In the autumn, we went through uh, the Gospel of Mark. We had eight chapters together, and uh, today we're returning uh, into Mark's Gospel, and we'll be in Mark's Gospel until Easter Sunday. Over the last eight studies, we have been introduced to Jesus, and we were introduced to Jesus as the one who has authority. He has authority over demons, authority over disease, and authority over death. And he is the one who can heal. He is the one who can forgive. He is the one who can still that raging storm and walk on water and cast demons into a herd of pigs and raise a dead girl and create a new hand for a man with a shriveled hand and give sight to a man who was totally blind. He was the one who could pray over five small loaves and two fish and feed a crowd of perhaps 15,000 people. And Mark presents Jesus as the one of great authority, the one who can only do what God can do. But Jesus' authority isn't only demonstrated in his power by way of healing or miracles, but his words were also authoritative. No one had spoken like him. He commanded people to follow him, and they did. Fishermen, tax collectors, freedom fighters, to name but a few. And Mark tells us that people were amazed. They were amazed because he was one who spoke with great authority. So who is this Jesus? Well, even his disciples were struggling to grasp who Jesus was. And when Jesus stilled the storm, they they said to one another, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In our last study, um, just before Christmas, in uh, chapter 8, Jesus has a crucial conversation with his disciples, and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, typical Peter, answered, you are the Messiah. But it becomes very clear that for Peter, the Messiah was someone who was a victorious military leader from the line of David who had come to conquer the Roman invaders to the land. But for Jesus, the Messiah was based on Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the one who came to bring God's rule uh, by giving his life on a cross. There, Peter and Jesus, you have two very different ideas, concepts of who the Messiah is, two very different ideas of what the Messiah came to do. But the disciples didn't get it. They think that following King Jesus is something that will bring them fame and status and importance in life. But Jesus makes it clear to them and to us that following him is dying to yourself, dying to your pride and to worldly ambitions. Following him is to carry your own cross and to become a servant of all. And we're going to see in the next couple of chapters over a number of weeks that Jesus will have this conversation with his disciples on a few more occasions. Jesus tells them that the Son of Man, that's the way that he referred to himself, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's where we pick up chapter 9 this morning. We are told that Jesus, 
And please, on a Sunday morning, as I often say, do bring your Bibles. I'll be putting some texts up on screen. But do bring your Bibles and, uh, and a notebook as well if you wish to take notes. And uh, that helps then your discussion when you get into your life groups in the week. Jesus took three of his disciples, the usual three, Peter, James, and John, um, the disciples that Jesus had previously invited to Jairus' home when news came that Jairus' daughter had died. And he takes them up a mountain. And Jesus is suddenly transformed before them. Quite a moment. He is radiating with light, with the glory of God. A cloud envelops them. During this time, Jesus is speaking to two heroes of the Old Testament faith, men long since dead, Elijah and Moses. Imagine, imagine the scene. At this point, I've got lots and lots of questions. Whenever I read the scriptures, I, I, I come with questions. I don't know if you're the same. I'm very inquisitive. I want to know things. And sometimes the things I want to know are not told me in the text. But I've got many questions. And the first question is, why was it Peter, James, and John? Why not the others? Was Jesus playing favorites? Well, we're not actually told in Mark's gospel. But we are told something that gives us a little bit of a clue. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28, we are told that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and went up on the mountainside to pray. Now, Matthew and Luke, um, sorry, Matthew and Mark don't tell us why they went up the mountain. They just tell us that they did. But Luke tells us that they went up the mountain to pray. And when reading scripture, I think it's also good to use our imaginations and try to read between the lines of what's going on. I can somehow imagine Jesus saying to the twelve, hey, you guys, fancy a mountain climb? And Thomas responds, hmm, sounds like a lot of effort to me. And besides, what on earth do you want to climb a mountain for? And Jesus answers, to pray. Pray? And I can imagine Simon immediately clenching his right buttock and complaining about the sciatica that he has. And Andrew remembers that he needs to visit his aged aunt whose birthday it was last week. And Judas, well, he's got to finish the accounts and Matthew has an ingrowing toenail. But when Jesus, when Jesus says pray, you've got Peter, James and John, they're there with their walking boots on. Now, I can't be sure, but maybe, just maybe, that was the reason that only Peter, James, and John went with Jesus. And if I've got that right, human nature hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Mention a barbecue, everyone's there. Invite people to pray together, and you get 25% normally. Peter, James, and John, three out of 12, that's 25%, isn't it? I've got other questions. Why Moses and Elijah? And how did the disciples seem to know who they were? Did they have name tags? I don't know. Why not David? After all, he was a man after God's own heart. Why not Abraham? He was the father of the nation of Israel or Isaiah. Why was it Moses and Elijah? Again, we're not told. But it would appear that those two men, Moses and Elijah, represented the law and the prophets 
If you were to speak to any Jew at that time and speak about their Hebrew scriptures, they would refer to them as the Law and the Prophets. The Law or the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the Prophets. Or sometimes they were divided into three groups, Law, Prophets, and Writings. So essentially, these two guys, Moses and Elijah, were there to be a confirmation and a witness to the fact that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, the one that their scriptures foretold. Peter had previously declared that Jesus was the Messiah, and now the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, their Hebrew scriptures, represented by Moses and Elijah, were saying the same. This one that is before you, he is the Messiah. And then Jesus or rather, then Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Mark adds a lovely human touch. He says that in verse 6, he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. I, I love that. There's a sort of lovely human touch there in, in, in Mark. Typical Peter. As we've said before on other occasions, that Peter suffered from foot and mouth disease. He opened his mouth and he put his foot in it. And that's the sort of thing that um, we can all do in times. That we don't know what to say, therefore we start talking. And then we wish that we hadn't. Have you been there? Oh, yes. Yes. I've been there many times. And then we beat ourselves up. Because we've embarrassed ourselves. And why on earth did I say that? Oh, just to, just to open my mouth at the wrong time. They must think I'm such a wally. Let us put up three shelters. One for you. One for Moses. And one for Elijah. Peter is essentially saying here, I want to bottle the moment. And I'm sure that there have been many times in our lives that we have said that same phrase. Oh, that was absolutely brilliant. I just wish I could bottle the moment. It might have been the, the joy of the wedding day. It might have been the birth of a child, graduation at university, or perhaps uh, uh, Wales beating England at rugby. <laughs> Let's be honest with you, and I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth now. Wales beating England, England at rugby isn't so special to me anymore. <laughs> really, it's not. It's because we do it so often. <laughs> it's boring. Yeah, it's, uh, there we go. No, seriously, come back. <laughs> Bottle the moment. How often have we said that about various things in our lives? Oh, I wish I could just take that moment away with us. Maybe there have been special times as well when we've experienced those special times with Jesus in His presence that we could just stay in that place, that we could live in that place of heightened spiritual intimacy and ecstasy. To rest in your presence, not rushing away. To cherish each moment. Here I would stay. This is my desire, O Lord. This is my desire. I'm sure we've all experienced those moments when God seems so tangibly, seems so real. We felt that we could just reach out and touch Him. His presence was so there. And the, the troubles and the trials and the challenges of life seem so insignificant at those times. They seem to fade in the background. They seem so temporary, so momentary. And we could believe God for absolutely anything. 
And those times are indeed a great privilege when God meets us in those ways, and they're quite wonderful. But then we read in this um, chapter, in verse 7, Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my Son whom I love, listen to him. Now throughout Mark, and we've been studying this a number of weeks now, we note that he makes considerable efforts to present evidence of who Jesus is through his miracles, through his healings. Um, Peter acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, the presence of Moses and Elijah confirmed that Jesus is now the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And now, now it comes to the, the high point. Father God himself says who Jesus is. This is my son whom I love. Now listen to him. Now, if we were left in any doubt up to this point, up to this moment, we would certainly not be able to claim ignorance of who Jesus is. We're told that the cloud came and enveloped them. Now, this detail wouldn't have been lost on good Jewish boys because the cloud represented, and they knew it full well, the cloud represented the presence of God the Shekinah glory of God. When the people of Israel were in the wilderness, following their time in Egypt, they were in the wilderness and there was a pillar of cloud that they followed by day and a pillar of cloud by, and a pillar of fire by night. And there are many other occasions that God appeared to the Israelites in, in, in a cloud. And this was an incredible experience. Jesus there is transfigured before them the cloud of God's presence, hearing God's voice from within the cloud, and a catch-up with Big Mo and Eli. Wow, what a day. What a day, a day to be remembered. And I'm sure you would agree with me that mountaintop experiences are wonderful, uh, are, are just wonderful. But there's also a danger in a mountaintop experience. It's the danger that Peter faced here. It's a danger that we all face that they are so wonderful that we don't want to come down from the mountain into the valley. Peter didn't want that uh, glorious event to ever end. He wanted to stay right there. He wanted to bask in the sunshine of God's presence. But we know, we know that life cannot be lived on a mountaintop. Life is lived in the valley below. And when Jesus, Peter, James, and John came down from the mountain, they found people in the valley who were hurting and in need. We found people there who were in need, people there who needed the touch of Jesus upon their lives. Let me put this phrase up on screen for you. I'll just explain where I'm coming from on this. I've said there that authentic worship always leads you to fulfill God's mission. Wasn't the worship just great this morning with people who've been touched by God's grace, responding in love and praise and adoration to the Lord? So wonderful. I saw, I'm blessed, and you are too, to come together with people of God, people of like mind, people whose lives have been touched by God's grace as yours have, on a Sunday morning and just to worship the Lord. But authentic worship always leads you to fulfill God's mission. And if your mountaintop experience of the presence of God doesn't lead you to reach out to a hurting world with compassion and with mercy, 
then something is seriously wrong somewhere. Worship and mission, they go hand in hand. Jesus said, in fact, his last words on before he ascended into heaven, he says, when the Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses. Being filled with the Spirit and being witnesses are two sides of the same coin. The mountaintop very often prepares you for the valley. Isaiah had a great vision. You can read this in Isaiah chapter 6, one of the great chapters of the Bible. He had a great vision of God. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were, uh, were, were seraphim, each with six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. An amazing, amazing encounter that he had. What was Isaiah's response to that in the light of this great vision that he had? Well, firstly, he saw himself. Woe is me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then, after he saw himself, he saw his mission. Here am I, send me. You see, an encounter with God often leads to both seeing ourselves as we are, that we are weak, inadequate, insufficient for the task that God has for us in our own strength. But an encounter with God will also enable us to see other people as God sees them. To look at them with grace-filled eyes. To look at them with the eyes of Jesus. When Jesus looked at the crowd, he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So let's just pick up the story of what happens in the valley. Chapter 9, verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. And the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus... They were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Verse 19. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything take pity on us and help us if you can said jesus everything is impossible everything is possible for the one who believes immediately the boy's father exclaimed i do believe help me overcome my unbelief verse 25 when jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him in the name. 
of Jesus and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that he said, he's dead. Verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now the gospel writers, the three writers, Matthew, Mark and Luke, they seem to be telling us that the two stories go together. The mountaintop experience, the transfiguration, and this shrieking stubborn demon <coughs> in the valley. In the Bible, we often see that the mountaintops and deep dark valleys follow each other. It's something that we see time and time again. Moses, there's a story there of when he was on Mount Sinai, when he was receiving the commandments from God. This was an absolutely awesome occasion for him. At the same time, down in the valley, the people there were so upset that Moses was being so long in coming down that they made for themselves a golden calf that they began to worship. So after the dizzy heights of having an audience with God, Moses is brought down to earth with the stark realities of a wayward people who were prepared to worship a golden calf, a calf that they'd made with their own hands. Another example is found in Elijah. Elijah similarly took, the false prophet, took on the false prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And on that day, Elijah won an incredible victory. Mountain top experience was followed by the valley when King Ahab's wife Jezebel informed Elijah that she would kill him within 24 hours. And it says in Scripture that Elijah, this, this man of God, this great prophet, was afraid and ran for his life. Jesus' high point of baptism the father spoke, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. The high point of his 30 years on earth was followed by a valley, more specifically a desert, where he was tempted for the next 40 days by the devil. The apostle Paul is another example in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He writes of his exceedingly great visions. He speaks about himself getting caught up into heaven. Whether it was in my body or out of my body, I do not know, but God knows. He tells her that he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. And then he says this in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, 12, 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly <clears throat> great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. So there you've got it in all those examples. You see it time and time again. The mountain and the valley. The mountain and the valley. The, the great revelations and the thorn in the flesh. The baptism in the desert. The great victory and the great opposition. And I would suggest to you today not to see it strange at all. That when you have had some spiritual victory, that you will go through a time of severe testing. Many people have spoken to me over the years speaking about their own 
baptisms, their time when they were baptized, or perhaps leading someone to Jesus, or after some spiritual high that they came a spiritual low, there were challenges, there were trials, there were temptations. You see, mountaintop experiences help us get ready to face the future with hope and assurance that God is there with us. Mountaintop experiences can also prepare us for our own valleys. When we're in the valley of joblessness, when we're in the valley of loneliness, when we're in the valley of despair and depression, when we're in that valley of sickness, when we're in the deepest and darkest valley of all, the valley of the shadow of death. And in that valley we are promised that we need not fear because the Lord is with us. To use an analogy taken from the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, what we store up in, what we, what we store up in the years of plenty will see us through the years of famine. The spiritual principle there really is. Jesus, the disciples, came down from the mountain. They were confronted by a large crowd. We're told by Mark that the teachers of the law were arguing with the disciples and the topic of this heated discussion was a young lad who was being controlled by an evil spirit, caused the boy to convulse and foam at the mouth and scream, and sometimes the seizures caused him to fall into the fire or water. The lad's father was beside himself with worry. He told Jesus that he had brought his lad to the disciples, but they were powerless to help. Why is that? It's really interesting to note just a few weeks back in our studies, Mark tells us on that occasion that Jesus sent the disciples out giving them authority over the demons. And they went out two by two into the villages and into the towns. And they cast out demons and they healed people in the name of Jesus. But on this occasion, they seemed to be powerless to do anything at all. When they got Jesus on his own in a home later on, they asked him why this was so, and Jesus told them that this kind can only come out by prayer. You see, the power and anointing that they once experienced was no longer available to them. And I just wonder why. Could it have been that they just got a little bit complacent? Maybe they forgot that the authority that Jesus had given them over sickness and disease and evil spirits was not something that they possessed apart from him. You've probably seen the bumper sticker which says, uh, seven prayerless days makes one week. But maybe that's why they were spiritually impotent and ineffective. There's a quote, I've used it on other occasions, it's, uh, it, it, it's one of these incredible quotes from a man called Samuel Chadwick. Samuel Chadwick was a, a leader in the Methodist movement at the turn of the 20th century. He says, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. That quote always touches a nerve in me. And I know that he is right. If 
I confess this morning, I'm far more of a Martha than I am a Mary. And yet after 42 years a Christian, 32 as a pastor, I am probably more aware than ever that I am at my best, I am at my most effective when I draw close to the source of my strength, Jesus. And I am most ineffective when I try to do ministry by leaning on my own experience and accumulated knowledge instead of leaning on Jesus. What about you? You know, as I look out on this uh, church gathering this morning, we've got a great church family. We've got a family here who are passionate at serving others, of reaching out and serving young and old, rich and poor, in a whole number of ways. But as you think of your own ministry areas, so many of you are active in ministry. As you think of your own ministry areas, do you rely on your own ability, your own experience to get you through? Or do you lean on Jesus? Do you constantly ask for his wisdom, his empowerment, his help? his blessing or do you think you've got it sorted you see if we're going to be any use to Jesus in ministry and serving him in in the extension of his kingdom it is so important that we take care of our spiritual lives and I make no apology for saying this that we need those times of personal encounter we need those times when we just come aside with Jesus. And if Jesus, God's own son, needed to make time with his heavenly father when he was on earth, how much more, how much more do we need to do the same? Jesus says, well-known words, John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. That's a promise. Uh, wasn't it James this morning was uh, in his prayer quoting the promises of God? And my word, that is a great promise. That as we remain in him, we will be fruitful. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's another promise, by the way. Then there's this uh, fascinating discussion between Jesus and the, uh, the demon-possessed lad's father. And the father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, says Jesus. Now, I'd love to be in a fly on the wall there. Because, you know, what I've got is just black on white paper. I've got words on a text. I would have so loved to have known what kind of tone Jesus used when he said that. What his facial expressions were. Was he angry? Was he frustrated? Was he offhand? Was he curt with this man? Everything is possible for the one who believes. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Does that sound like you on occasions? <laughs> yes. It sounds an awful lot like me. 
I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. My life is often a mixture of faith and doubt, belief and unbelief, mountains and valleys. Some days I feel I could walk on water. Not tried it yet. Other times I'm questioning what is this life all about? Am I achieving anything worthwhile? And you know what? I and you, we are no different from the heroes of faith that we read of in the scriptures. They were made of the same flesh and blood as we are. Jesus tells us that the greatest human being who ever lived was John the Baptist. Matthew 11, verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. It was John who announced when he first saw Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was John who was there baptizing Jesus. It was John who saw heaven open, the Spirit descend. It was John who experienced all of these things. It was John who heard the Father commend Jesus. This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And yet, roll on some years. John was imprisoned and he questioned everything. He sent two of his disciples out to Jesus to ask, Are you the one? Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? The highs and the lows. The mountaintops and the valleys. And it may be today that you might feel that that father's response to Jesus could equally be your words. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You may look at yourself this morning and feel disqualified. You might feel inadequate. You might feel that God can use other people but not you because you are insufficient for anything that God would throw at you. You might think that the idea of God ever using you is laughable. The boy's father was transparent. He was very open with Jesus, very honest about his lack of faith. But you know what? He got the most important thing right. He came to Jesus. He came to Jesus. He is the way maker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper light in darkness. Jesus is the bread of life to the hungry. He is the way to those who are lost. He is the truth to those who are self-deceived. He is the light of the world for those walking in darkness. He is the resurrection and the life for those who are spiritually dead. He is the true vine for all those who desire to live fruitful lives. He is hope to the hopeless. He is joy to the desolate. He is strength to the weak. He is wisdom to the foolish. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. To those who need assurance, He's got you covered. Hello? He's got you covered. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world for all those who need their sins forgiven. You don't need a mountain to meet Jesus. A moment will do. We can only win the battles in the valley and be fruitful in serving Jesus if we first encounter him on the mountaintop. But don't forget, if we encounter him on the mountaintop, then that is to empower us 
to live, live lives for him in the valley. Guys, would you like to come back? Just like to pray. Would you stand with me, please? <clears throat> Maybe the Lord has just touched something in your life this morning and you just want an opportunity just to make your response. It's good to make a response. You know, if the Lord touches something in our lives, just to respond in whichever way and whatever the Lord is touching in our lives, it's good. It's a step in faith to the grace that God has shown us. So let's just pray together. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. Lord, you are the center of our lives. You are our hope, our joy, our peace, our confidence. You are the one who makes it all worthwhile. Lord, we pray your forgiveness upon us. If there have been those times, even today, that you have not been central in our lives when we have just attempted to do your work in our way, in our strength. Forgive us, Lord, for the times instead of allowing you <coughs> to be in the driving seat. You've been put in the passenger seat or even the back seat of our lives. Forgive us, Lord. Pray this morning that by your Spirit you will refresh us and restore us and rejuvenate our love for you that we might declare the praises of our God and bring honor to his name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.